0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 3. A Positive Biblical confession is mandatory. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans ten, eight. 10. The evangelical world proclaims the necessity of each individual's making a positive confession in public regarding his confidence in the saving work of Christ on Calvary as his only hope of eternal life. The individual covenant between God and man is grounded on a positive public confession. This confession is judicial. It proclaims that Jesus Christ's atoning work on Calvary has satisfied God's legal claims against the confessor, now that he has made this public declaration. But what about the other three covenants, ecclesiastical, familial, and civil? What about confession? Each involves taking a self-maledictory oath before God, invoking God's lawfully applied negative sanctions should the oath-taker violate the terms of the covenant. Only these three institutions are legally authorized by God to impose self-meldictory oaths—church, state, and family. There must be positive judicial confessions in all three, either made in public or implied. For example, the Christian declares his faith in Christ, but then declares his commitment to Christ's church. To gain legal access to baptism and the Lord's Supper, he must join the church. This involves taking a vow of obedience. There are historical sanctions attached to this confession-based membership: positive, the sacraments, and negative, excommunication. Then comes the family. Marriage is unquestionably covenantal. Under God, a man and woman establish a family unit. In most vows, the phrase quote, "till death do us part" end quote, is required. This is God's ultimate negative sanction in history, and this is why divorce is by death only, either covenantal death or physical death. Then comes the state. Its required oath of allegiance is usually only implied, although political office, military service, and naturalization usually require some sort of public oath. The President of the United States takes his oath of office with one hand on the Bible. The presence of a Bible is traditional, though not required by law. Testimony in a court of law requires an oath. Until quite recently in the U.S., a witness swore with his right hand raised toward heaven and his left hand on the Bible. He invoked God's name, so help me God. In recent decades, atheists have been allowed merely to swear on their own authority that they will tell the truth. God's name is not invoked. This means that that individual is taking a self maldictory oath to the state, not to God. Christendom. There is little debate among Christians regarding the legitimacy of a confession in the first three cases, personal, ecclesiastical, and familial covenants. But with the triumph of Unitarian theology in the U.S. Constitution, followed by the rise of secular humanism accelerating in the 20th century, American Christians have begun to doubt the legitimacy of a Christian civil oath. Such oaths are expressly forbidden by the U.S. Constitution, Article 6, Section 3, the opposite of state oaths prior to the American Revolution. This means that Christians have abandoned any idea of the biblical covenantal requirement for a positive Christian confession for civil government. While they will defend the idea of a biblical blueprint or required framework for the Church and the family, they assume that there is no similar blueprint for civil government. The conservative American affirms the U.S. Constitution as the valid model, a model bordering on the divine, and the liberal generally agrees, although there will be a great debate about the proper interpretation of the Constitution. But, apart from the theonomists, there is no Trinitarian Christian group still defending the Puritan ideal of a theocratic republic. The Church is regarded as as theocratic. The family is regarded as theocratic. Laws against polygamy indicate this. But the state is seen as religiously neutral, and the Bible is said to be devoid of any model for the state. This is Westminster's confession. Then what a society in general? What kinds of positive confessions are appropriate for a Christian social order? What kind of society should the four covenants—personal, ecclesiastical, familial, and civil—produce as history draws closer to the final judgment. Calvinists, prior to 1660, debated this issue. They spoke to these issues in the name of God. They no longer do. Worse, they no longer regard it as either possible or religiously necessary to require a Trinitarian oath in civil affairs. This is Westminster's confession. By self-consciously abandoning the idea of a positive Christian confession in the realm of civil government— Christians have actively participated in the de Christianization of society. While the state does not create society, it is a legitimate covenantal institution. It is an inescapable God-mandated covenantal institution. Without the presence of a Christian confession for the state, serving as it necessarily does as the third institutional pillar of an expressly Christian society, there cannot be an expressly Christian society. Those who deny the legitimacy of Christian civil government understand this. They also, self-consciously, reject the idea of Christendom. Necessarily, they also accept the idea of another law order, another confession for the state, and therefore for society, but they refuse to discuss its details. In the days of the Westminster Assembly, such a confession of another law order was understood to be a confession for another god. Such a confession would have been unthinkable except in the distant North American colony of Rhode Island. Today the Westminster Assembly's vision of confessional Christendom is unthinkable among Calvinists except for the theonomists and covenanters. The broad international vision of the Assembly has disappeared. What has taken its place? A Degree of Confusion Calvinism is known generally for its doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God. For most people, this means the doctrine of predestination. The English-language acronym, TULIP, presents a clear, concise summary of Calvinism's predestination. Total depravity of man, unconditional election by God, limited, specific atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. This is a five-point predestination model. To a lesser extent, Calvinism is known as covenant theology. For well over four centuries, no Calvinist theologian presented a clear, concise, and biblically supported definition of what this covenant is. We can see this by searching the Westminster Confession and its catechisms for a definition of covenant. There is none. This absence of any definition did not hinder the acceptance of Calvinism any more than Marx's refusal to define class hindered the acceptance of Marxism. The word covenant became a kind of mantra that was repeated over and over whenever the Calvinist was asked to distinguish his theological position from the others. Quote, we believe in God's covenant. End quote. What is this covenant? Quote, a personal legal bond. How does it apply to the real world? Covenantally. What are its unique features? Covenantal. How are they different from any other legal bond? God imposes it. But how? Sovereignly. What do you mean sovereignly? Tuliply. And from there? The Calvinist could deflect the discussion away from the covenant and back to the familiar five points of predestination, of which he was the textual master. If the questioner pursued the matter of the covenant, he would be given long shrift, if necessary, three years long, seminary. The Calvinist's seminary education does not clarify the covenant. It systematically does not clarify the covenant. The student may be assigned Hodge's three-volume systematic theology, 1873, which devotes more space to a refutation of the philosophy of Sir William Hamilton—you remember him, of course—than it does to the Doctrine of the Covenant. Or perhaps he is assigned L. Berkhoff's Systematic Theology, which has a skimpy eight-page index for 738 pages of text, and which lists covenant under, quote, covenant of grace, end quote, covenant of works, and covenant of redemption. A traditional triparate classification device that few, if any, Calvinist theologians are willing to defend anymore. This division is surely not emphasized in the classroom. The student looks up Covenant of Grace and learns that 1. It is a gracious covenant. 2. It is a Trinitarian covenant. 3. It is an eternal and therefore unbreakable covenant. 4. It is a particular and universal covenant. 5. It is essentially the same in all dispensations, though its form of administration changes. This takes less than a page and a half to present. 278 through 79. Burkhoff then goes on for four pages to explain point five, not one idea of which is remotely memorable. But what is the covenant? He never says exactly, neither have any of his academic colleagues. But the student is not supposed to notice, and quite frankly, Almost none of them ever have. Generation after generation of students, calling themselves covenantalists, cannot tell you what a biblical covenant is. Surely, not with the same precision and confidence that they can rotely exposit TULIP for you. Ask a Calvinist to find a single passage in Scripture in which TULIP appears, and he will assure you that TULIP is derived from many texts, which he has marked in his Bible. Ask him where covenant appears in scripture, and he may say the entire structure of the book of Deuteronomy, but that is about as much as he will say. He needs to say no more. The five point biblical covenant model. the solution came in nineteen eighty five Ray R. Sutton's that you may prosper, which presents the five point biblical covenant model, number one transcendence imminence two hierarchy, authority, three, ethics, law, four, oaths, sanctions, and five, succession, inheritance. Now there is theos to complement Tulip. Subsequently, Sutton showed in his monthly newsletter, Covenant Renewal, 1987, how this structure appears in Bible passages after passage. The newsletter is sent for free to any seminary student who requests it. Do Reformed seminary professors assign that you may prosper? Do they tell students about the free subscription? Hardly. They do not mention the book, its thesis, or the subsequent published documentation. To do this would be to admit, publicly, that the Calvinist movement floated on a handful of proof texts for over four centuries without ever discovering what the covenant is. Worse, it would be to admit that the discovery of the unique biblical covenant model was not made by a resident seminary professor. And so, if a student mentions the five-point model, he is told that, quote, there are many points to the biblical covenant, end quote, to which the student should respond, quote, name six, end quote. What he will get is the five points and an extra one that clearly is an application or subdivision of one of the five. If he asks to see a biblical text with more than five, he is likely to create a great deal of trouble for himself. Paradigm shifts do not take place inside universities and seminaries. They take place outside them and are imported by later generations of professors. What is a paradigm shift? It is a radical change in the kinds of questions asked, the kinds of procedures acceptable for answering them, and the kinds of solutions accepted. These revolutionary events take place frequently in the humanist academic world. There has not been one in American Calvinism since 1788. One is on its way. To head it off, the faculty of Westminster Seminary wrote Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. They prudently focused on Bonson's writings rather than sentence. Had I been in charge of the project, I would have done exactly the same thing, for strategic reasons rather than intellectual. This assumes that the decision to publish had been made already. Otherwise, I would have recommended continued silence." No use giving one's opponents an opportunity to blow numerous holes in that rusting hulk of a ship, the USS Civil Religion, on which members of the Westminster faculty, as with all other Calvinist seminary faculty members, serve as low-paid porters. Why give your students an opportunity to see the whole faculty challenged? A Question of Sustained Vision it has been a recurring theme in almost all of the published criticisms of theonomy that the founders of the movement, Rush Dooney, North, and Bonson, do not agree on all points. Added to this is the fact that we do not get along with each other. I actually like Bonson. It is the recurring essay deadline problem that separates us. Bonson and I are indeed united against Rush Dooney's view of the church, which is at best theologically imprecise and is unquestionably colored by his personal rebellion. Rushduni does not belong to a local church, nor has he taken communion in two decades, except when he is on the road, speaking at a church that has a policy of open communion or is unaware of his non-member status. He has not spoken with either of us for many years. But this is Rushduni's problem, not ours. It is also of no particular theological benefit to theonomy's critics. The presence of personal rivalries within a denomination or movement is not exactly front page news these days. Machen was not on close terms with fellow Presbyterian Robert E. Speer. Van Til was not on close terms with fellow Presbyterian Gordon Clark. Now let us look at dispensationalism. Charles Ryrie is not on close terms with Dallas Seminary. John Whitcomb is not on close terms with Grace Seminary. John MacArthur is not on close terms with Zane Hodges. Bob Jones, any number, is not on close terms with Billy Graham. Is Bob Thyme on close terms with anybody? And then there is Constance Cumby, the sin non, of not on good terms. When you get down to it, Martin Luther was not chummy with John Calvin. The division between them was expressly theological. Sanctions, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Does this call into question the legitimacy of the Protestant Reformation? judicial inconsistency and psychological relief. Why, then, all the commotion among theonomy's critics about this or that intratheonomic debate over the application of a particular case law of the Old Testament? I think it has something to do with the constancy of the theonomic vision, our assertion that Old Testament case laws and their civil sanctions still must be honored, unless there is a new covenant, passage, or principle to the contrary. This very constancy stands as a threat to the present confession of the entire modern Church, but especially those Protestant branches that emphasize the written Bible, in contrast to Church tradition, Roman Catholicism, communal mysticism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or metaphysical sacramentalism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. It is our judicial constancy that both threatens and exposes the incomparable cacophony of the modern Church an institution which now prides itself on its lack of judicial and cultural specifics in its peripheral confrontations with humanism. The modern church holds on tightly to an empty bag and declares, quote, The Bible has answers to every problem, end quote. Ask for one, and you are then told, quote, The Bible does not provide blueprints for whatever you just asked about, end quote. This has been going on for well over a century. It is a charade. In the United States, the Christian-humanist conflict, to the extent that the Christians acknowledge its existence, can be seen in the attitude of the churches toward the public schools. This attitude is either favorable or, officially, neutral. The situation boils down to this. An operating alliance between the escape religion, Protestantism, and the power religion, humanism, those few Protestant Christians who openly reject secular public education fast-becoming new-age public education, are themselves divided between two views. One, the Christian school as a refuge from secular culture, and two, the Christian school as a boot camp for the conquest of secular culture by Christianity. The rhetoric of boot camp Christian education is common, but the school's curriculum materials give the lie to it. The higher the grade level, the less intellectually rigorous and less visibly Christian the curriculum. By the end of graduate school, there is no visible difference at all. Graduate school Christians think and vote like everyone else in their peer group, for example, liberal. I like to think of this as the Gordon-Conwell effect. Christians either are absorbed by their enemies ideologically or withdraw from the arena of confrontation. Sometimes both take place within a single institution. I like to think of this as the Westminster effect. In stark contrast to this process of either ideological absorption or withdrawal is the Christian Reconstruction movement. We end right where we begin, with the capital sanctions of the Old Testament. It is these sanctions that define us. It is these sanctions that repel our critics, whose name is Legion. Even our vaguely respectable fellow travelers, such as Vern Poitras, get nervous at the word stoning. The fact is, contemporary Christians feel far more threatened by the thought of people getting stoned legally, Moses' word, than people getting stoned illegally, Timothy Leary's word, and the result is the widespread acceptance in the church of a cultural version of Dr. Leary's 1969 recommended mantra, quote, tune in, turn on, drop out, end quote. That Dr. Leary, a former Harvard professor, untenured went down this chemical-mystical pathway should be no more surprising than the fact that today he has returned from chemical bliss to become a computer-software promoter. As Van Til said, when you see assertions of total rationalism, get prepared for total irrationalism, and vice versa. The critics of theonomy therefore rejoice when they see a division of opinion within the theonomic camp, for it reassures them that there really is no judicial consistency of God in this, the new covenant era. Judicial consistency was the burden of the old covenant from which we have supposedly been set free. This discovery of unresolved differences among the theonomists relieves critics psychologically from the tremendous moral pressure of searching for judicial consistency on God's part, justifying it theologically and, most threatening of all, publicly pressuring the civil government, to honor this consistency in its laws and especially its sanctions. In short, they feel themselves hard-pressed to survive on the fringes of Western civilization, let alone to move toward its judicial center in the name of Jesus Christ. When the bow breaks. But there is this lurking problem. What presently unifies the judicial foundation of Western civilization? What moral base provides the continuing legitimacy, stability, and public faith in Western civilization. Christians, as members of the church militant, are in history, like it or not. They want out, but they cannot lawfully get out except on God's terms. They are not immune to the disruptions that are now escalating in the world. If God is not the source of these disruptions, then what is? If Christians no longer believe that God brings sanctions in history, then what hope can Christians offer to a world in crisis? Dispensationalism offers the rapture, but rapture fever, like all other fevers, produces the familiar symptoms of uncontrollable shaking and hallucinating in its victims, grim afflictions that are only marginally more debilitating than all millennialisms pre perusia paralysis, God's frozen people. If Christians are in the world, then they are supposed to be either on top of things under God or at the bottom of the heap under Satan. There is no doubt where the theonomists think Christians should be. If the Church were to become covenantally, judicially faithful to God for a few generations, not only an historic possibility, but an inescapable future reality, say the postmillennialists, there is also no doubt about where contemporary dispensationalists think Christians should and must be prior to the rapture, the Great Tribulation, and the Second Coming cleaning out the cesspools of humanism's civilization. The best we can hope for, in their view, is an electric suction pump instead of a hand-driven one, or worse, visions of gasoline tank siphon hoses. But Westminster Seminary is neither theonomic nor dispensational. Where, then, do its faculty members think that Christians should be in the cultural and political hierarchy? And how do they think the Covenantal Church, State, and Family should get us there? Jerusalem or Athens Since 1973, the Westminster faculty has faced a growing theological challenge, theonomy. The theonomists claim that there is a workable alternative to the judicial pluralism of the modern world, biblical law, that our world is suffering from the devastating effects of moral pluralism, no Calvinist doubts. That this moral pluralism is the product of an underlying theological pluralism, no Calvinist doubts. Man reject the God of the Bible, and so he turns them over to their own evil imaginations, Romans 1, 18-22. But the question that the theonomists have raised needs to be answered. If the long-run intent of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to eliminate theological pluralism and moral pluralism, Why isn't it inescapably also the long-run goal of the gospel to eliminate judicial pluralism? Furthermore, if judicial pluralism goes, then so will political pluralism. It is this final step that the critics of theonomy all see as a necessary outcome of the transformation of pluralism. But if this is a legitimate long-run goal of the gospel, then Christianity is in ultimate conflict with the right wing of the Enlightenment meaning all forms of democratic theory that promote universal suffrage without respect to creedal confession. Ultimately, it means the rejection of the political polytheism of the U.S. Constitution. This degree of judicial radicalism is too much even for Rushduni, just as Rush Dooney's Institutes was too much judicially for Van Til. But the critics of Theonomy have been saying this about the implications of Rush Dooney's Institutes from the beginning. They could see where the the judicial theory of the Institutes was inevitably heading back to the theocratic republicanism of the pre-1788 North American English colonies, except for Rhode Island and possibly Georgia. The critics are correct. This is exactly where theonomy leads, as surely as natural law theory leads to sadism. In short, the biblical ideal is Jerusalem, not Athens. Van Til made it clear as no Christian philosopher had before him, that there has to be a philosophical break with Athens. This was the heart of his contribution to apologetics. The assumption of human autonomy is the heart of man's rebellion against God. It pervades all non-Christian thinking. Van Til insisted, and it has infected Christian apologetics from the beginning. But if Van Til is correct, then there has to be a break with the politics of Athens. The real Athens like all the other ancient city-states, was a theocracy. No one could participate in the political life or legal life of Athens who was not eligible to participate in the religious rites of the city, which is why resident aliens, women, and slaves had no legal standing. Athens, the mythical ideal of the 18th century, is still the ideal that dominates modern democratic political theory. Every defense of pluralism as a legitimate long-term ideal In whatever guise, is a return to Athens. As a short term tactic during a temporary ceasefire, pluralism is a legitimate goal, but never as a long term goal. Ceasefires are to be used by Christians to build up the earthly kingdom's offensive capabilities in the war against Satan's earthly kingdom, not to sit by the fire and reminisce about the bad old days. Fantil's declaration of war. Against philosophical Athens was total. But in making this declaration, he necessarily called the Church of Jesus Christ back into the war room. Van Til insisted that the Church had been epistemologically a wall, absent without leave, for almost two thousand years. The Church, not covenant breaking man, must declare the terms of war and peace. The kingdom, as a corporate entity, is to rest judicially on God's terms for man's surrender in history. The Kingdom of God is God's civilization, both in heaven and on earth, in time and eternity. Van Til's declaration of covenantal war, if taken seriously, must be accompanied by several events, letting down the drawbridge, sounding the trumpets, and arming the troops. The troops must be given their marching orders. The idea of permanent comfort inside the castle is an illusion. The castle is useful only during temporary sieges, as surely as the city of Jerusalem was a death trap for those who occupied it before David captured it, and again when Titus captured it over a thousand years later, so is the familiar comfort of the ecclesiastical castle, when serious enemies are determined to take it and raise it. The ghetto is a place to avoid during a pogrom. Vantill warned us that the pogroms are coming, for as covenant breakers progressively recognize the threat. That covenant keepers pose to their way of life. The covenant breakers will tyrannize the church. Rushduni's post also sounded a warning to the covenant breakers. The coming pogroms will be spiritual, the products of the irresistible saving grace of God. But at this stage of the conflict, Christians are fearful that the theonomist sounding of the trumpets was premature. Our humanist opponents are said to be too powerful. They could become aroused as dispensational author David Allen Lewis warns, quote, "...unnecessary persecution could be stirred up." End quote. Nevertheless, fundamentalists have begun to sound a similar alarm with respect to public education. The homeschool movement has sounded an alarm and is now offensively engaged. Some of the anti-abortionist groups have given up any further reliance on common ground, natural law defenses of the rights of the unborn. Battlefield by battlefield, Christians are responding to the trumpets. They are beginning to venture outside their ghettos. Yet Westminster Seminary still refuses to sound the alarm. Such an alarm would openly split the faculty, as theonomy, a reformed critique, indicates. Worse, it might threaten funding. The school still refuses to face up to the revolution that Van Til hath wrought. It still cannot make up its mind, Jerusalem or Athens. It desperately seeks an alternative, It continues to echo the message that W.C. Fields is said to have had inscribed on his tombstone, quote, Frankly, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, end quote. The Need for Confession To say what Westminster Seminary is, we must identify what it confesses. We can identify it by discovering what it believes about the Bible. The editors of the symposium state that, quote, the Westminster Seminary tradition is one of academic freedom within a framework of firm commitment to the authority of the Bible and to our doctrinal standards as a faithful expression of that truth, end quote. Academic freedom is as academic freedom does. To put it bluntly, quote, tell it to Norman Shepard, end quote. But in any case, there comes a time to put into action one's formal commitment to the authority of the Bible. Point two of the biblical covenant model. It must be put into operation covenantally in points three through five, law, sanctions, and eschatology. The Need for Answers Those who claim allegiance to the Bible must use it to answer fundamental questions. Without this willingness to apply the scriptures to real-world issues, the assertion of the editors regarding the Bible and the confessions could be interpreted in a Barthian fashion as indeed such statements were interpreted in the Presbyterian Church USA from 1936, Machin's expulsion from the PCUSA, until the Confessional Revision in 1967. Therefore, let us ask the faculty some basic questions of theology and applied theology. Let us ask them to write about these issues if they have not yet published any formal position papers. Let us seek clarification. These are the questions that theonomists have been grappling with ever since Resh By What Standard appeared in 1959. Was the world created in six 24-hour days? Was the Earth created on day one? Were the stars created on day four? Is the Earth older than the stars? Are stars billions of light-years away? Was the speed of light always a constant? Is modern cosmology Big Bang fraudulent? Is modern historical geology fraudulent? Was Noah's flood universal? What is the geological evidence for it? Do we need geological evidence to prove it? When did the flood occur? When did dinosaurs disappear? How old are the pyramids? What year was the temple built? When did the exodus occur? First Kings six, 1 Kings 6.1 Was Rahab wrong to lie? Are spies legitimate in wartime? Is it wrong for spies to lie? is military camouflage immoral did jonah preach biblical law to nineveh how long will people live in the new heaven and new earth isaiah 65:20 will anyone die in this era isaiah 65:20 will people die after the final judgment have the new heavens and new earth already begun is there anything left to be fulfilled isaiah 65:20 what is the millennium what is the kingdom of god what is the kingdom of satan Is the kingdom of Satan in part social? Is the kingdom of God in part social? Has sin corrupted every institution? Does God's offer of redemption extend to every institution? Has Satan's kingdom corrupted the state? Can God's grace redeem the state? What are the limits on God's redemption? Are some civil laws satanic? Are some civil laws biblical? Are some civil sanctions satanic? Are some civil sanctions biblical? How can we be sure? Is a 10 percent income tax immorally high? 1 Samuel 8:15 and 17. What crimes are capital crimes biblically? Is abortion murder? Who should enforce the Sabbath? What are the valid pro-Sabbath sanctions? Is chattel slavery biblically wrong? When did it become wrong? Leviticus 25:45 to 47. What is the Adamic covenant of works? What does general equity mean in the confession? Was Van Til correct about natural law? Should wine be used in the Lord's Supper? How often is the Lord's Supper required? What was Calvin's view on this question? Should infants be baptized? Should infants take communion? Are communion children full full church members? Should women be ordained as deacons? Should women be ordained as ruling elders? Should women be ordained as teaching elders? What is a teaching elder? Is healing by elders still valid? James 5.14 What is the purpose of the oil? James 5.14 Does God impose negative sanctions in history? Is syphilis the judgment of God? Is AIDS the judgment of God? Is there equality in heaven? 1 Corinthians 3.14 Is there equality in hell? Luke 12.47-48 Is there intellectual equality among men? Is there moral equality among men? Is long-term national poverty a judgment of God? Deuteronomy 28 15-68. Are most Africans poor because most Americans aren't poor? Who should have the right to vote in church? Why does any church structure itself in terms of Robert's rules of order? Who should have the right to vote in civil government? Is the U.S. Constitution a better guide to civil government than the Old Testament is? Is compulsory state education immoral? Is accreditation necessary for seminaries? Do seminary professors need advanced degrees? Are Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Edinburgh, or Oxford Divinity School degrees worth anything in God's sight? Be specific. Would Peter and Paul have qualified to teach at a seminary? The trouble is, these are the sorts of questions that are considered too technical or too obscure to warrant detailed discussion at most Presbyterian seminaries. Seminary students do not raise such questions, so seminary professors do not answer them. What kinds of questions do seminary professors answer? Questions such as these. Was Barth's theology Alexandrian or Antiochian? What was Barth's interpretation of Schleiermacher? What was the doctrine of God in the theology of Paul Tillich? What is the echo-narrative technique in Judges 19? How were the Isionic servant songs used in the missiology of Acts? How do we solve the unidentifiable interlocutor problem of James 2.18a. Preliminary answers to these crucial questions appear in the Westminster Theological Journal, Fall 1990, the same quarter in which Theonomy, a Reformed critique, appeared. As you might imagine, the WTJ is not a mass-circulation publication. To answer these professional sorts of questions, a Christian needs a willingness to devote his career to the study of the irrelevant and the very nearly irrelevant. He must be willing to do this without being sidetracked by such extraneous outside events as the economic collapse of communism or an accelerating series of crises in Western civilization, for example, AIDS. This single-minded dedication is what all tenure-seeking scholars are asked to adopt in every academic discipline. This is why that iconoclastic winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, George Steigler, once asked a group of scholars, I'd like to know why it is that in an entire year there is not a single journal article published in the economics profession that is worth reading. This is why Robert Nisbet, the distinguished sociologist, admitted to me in 1977 that he had stopped reading professional sociology journals several years earlier. Nobody reads such essays and nobody is expected to. They are written for the sake of proving oneself a full member of a guild. Each essay represents one more brick in a gigantic pile of bricks strewn randomly across the academic landscape, a pile that has been expanding exponentially for a century. To answer the controversial kinds of questions that I listed above, a Christian must take risks. He also needs a systematic worldview. He needs a handbook of biblical law because the modern church believes that the Bible is not a textbook on fill-in-the-blank. It has nothing authoritative to say to the world except to warn people to flee the world. Yet even this is not possible, since history is a package deal. You do not just flee it except by dying. We must live in the world. But to live in it, we must either make institutional peace with it as the historically defeated servants of God— or else change it in order to manifest God's kingdom standards on earth, including God's civil judicial standards. Theonomists recommend the latter. All other major Christian groups recommend the former. There is no permanent ceasefire with Satan in history. There is also no zone of neutrality between Christ and Satan. This compels us to choose. If we refuse to choose, we are brought under God's negative sanctions anyway. History is a realm of decision-making. No decision is still a decision. Both campuses of Westminster Seminary are under siege from all sides. From the east, each campus is threatened by the liberal accrediting agency. Get women on your board or we'll revoke your accreditation. Choose. On the west side, each campus is threatened by the traditional donors. Make up your mind whether you're Calvinists or mush-mouthed neo-evangelicals. Choose. On the north side, each campus is threatened by the challenge of the theonomists. Be true to Van Til. Choose. On the south side, each is threatened by students. This place is too academic. Lighten up. Underneath, the Philadelphia campus is Radon. Underneath the Escondido campus is the San Andreas Fault. Decisions. Decisions. Westminster Seminary as an institution does not want to choose. Theonomy, a Reformed critique, makes this clear. The faculty has never devoted much time or effort to answering the kinds of questions I listed. Not Machen's faculty, not Clowney's, and not today's. To answer them, you have to have a paradigm, a set of intellectual tools and standards that enable you to frame questions and also the valid approaches to possible answers. In short, you have to have a framework. Confessions and Frameworks The Westminster Confession was such a framework in its day, but its focus was circumscribed to the primary concerns of the institutional church. Christianity involves far more than the institutional church. So does God's kingdom. The church must speak authoritatively to the whole of life since its members participate in the whole of life. If the Church remains silent, then its members will hesitate to exercise authority in their callings. This is exactly what has happened. The self-imposed limitations of the Westminster Assembly became the Anglo-American Reformed theological standard. Thirteen years after the Assembly ended its work, Charles II was restored to the throne, and a generation of persecution against Calvinists began. Only with the glorious revolution of sixteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine did persecution lessen, but the new society was increasingly rationalist, unitarian, and contractual, not covenantal. The vision of a national covenant faded, even in North America. Casuistry, the application of Christian ethics to specific cases, died as a discipline by 1700. Newton triumphed over Althusius and Richard Baxter. In the late 19th century, Darwinism triumphed over Newton's presumed providential order. What the Westminster Assembly had begun, no other self-consciously Christian organization extended. It was the last of the great confessions. In the mid-19th century, Princeton Seminary had a broader view of Christian civilization, a view reflected in its scholarly journal. But after the era of the American Civil War, academia began to walk down the ever-multiplying ever-narrowing pathways of specialization. No longer would Presbyterian seminary journals run lengthy reviews of political studies, such as Alex de Tocqueville's The Old Regime and the Revolution, or Francis Leiber's On Civil Liberty and Self-Government. The Ph.D. was imported from Prussia in the late 19th century. A generation later, so was the kindergarten. The broader academic vision faded. No institution dared to speak with a unified voice except the state. There was a universal deferral of authority to the state, and so the state has inherited generation by generation. Confessions and Confrontation Theonomy a reform Critique is not a major source of concern for those of us who have been struggling with these larger questions. It is more of a testimony to what Westminster Seminary has been unwilling to do than a challenge to what theonomists have been doing self-consciously for the last 18 years. The book is a negative critique, and a negative critique is next to useless if it is not accompanied with a comprehensive alternative to whatever is being criticized. As I never ceased reminding our critics, they cannot beat something with nothing. They cannot beat the theonomists, secular humanism, modern science, and surely not Islam. Luther came before Christendom. And called men to a better form of worship, a positive activity. Calvin called Christendom to a broader vision of what Christian society means. The Counter Reformation, most notably the Jesuits, did the same. The Jesuits called men to examine themselves and dedicate their lives to serving God and the papacy. Meanwhile, Erasmus stayed on the sidelines, vainly protesting that good men should sit around in peace and read ancient. Greek manuscripts. Erasmus remained inside the artificial and temporary sanctuary of the library. There have been very few safe libraries ever since. Surely there were none in Germany a century later during the Thirty Years' War. Christian men may begin their journeys in the library. Luther did, and so did Calvin. But they are rarely allowed by God to stay there. And if their academic efforts are to bear fruit outside the library, neither May their followers stay there. Yet, it is Erasmus' example that still dominates the realm of academia. This is why academia is impotent. Academia is the kingdom of lost causes. This is why seminaries need confessions. They need to seek out donors who will contribute support in terms of this public confession. When the confession grows muddled, support will grow tenuous. Donors must sense that they are participating in a righteous, meaningful cause, They are not interested in financing kamikaze attacks or fruitless defenses of culturally barren ground. They want to support a vision like the one which Machen offered so many years ago. We who are reckoned as conservatives in theology are seriously misrepresented if we are regarded as men who are holding desperately to something that is old merely because it is old and are inhospitable to new truths. On the contrary, we welcome new discoveries with all our heart, and we are looking, in the Church, not merely for a continuation of conditions that now exist, but for a burst of new power. My hope of that new power is greatly quickened by contact with the students of Westminster Seminary. There, it seems to me, we have an atmosphere that is truly electric. It would not be surprising if some of these men might become the instruments by God's grace— of lifting preaching out of the sad rut into which it has fallen, and of making it powerful again for the salvation of men. End quote. That postmillennial vision, that positive historical confession, is long gone from Westminster. A new confession has replaced it a confession of what Christianity isn't in history, of what the kingdom cannot accomplish on earth, and of what the Bible doesn't provide blueprints. What Westminster's confession proclaims is the impossibility and undesirability of establishing Christendom. The kingdom of God in history has been internalized and ghettoized by this new confession. It is not enough to proclaim one's hostility to a particular position. What must also be proclaimed is an agreed-upon comprehensive alternative to whatever is formally rejected. But Westminster Seminary has offered only a negative confession, though disguised in the swaddling clothes of Christian cultural relevance, a cultural relevance without the biblical authority, law, sanctions, or millennial victory. This confession, culturally speaking, calls Christians to content themselves with tiptoeing through TULIP. It therefore rejects Christian reconstruction. The incompatible positive confessions of the book's individual authors reveal an institution and a tradition in the throes of a monumental crisis. Negative confessions will not persuade men who are caught in a cultural crisis to die in order to defend them. The bulk of the contributors to Theonomy of Reformed Critique have forgotten a fundamental rule of life. Whatever is not worth dying for is not worth living for either.